throughout the autumn, we are going to be uh, looking at uh, some of the parables of Jesus together. Jesus may be most famous uh, teaching tool. Uh, these parables, these stories that make powerful points about who God is and what life is to look like when we're following him and following Jesus. So we're going to uh, be looking at a parable that starts, we're going to start in verse 25 of chapter 14, and we're going to skip to 28 through to 33. In the book of Luke. Um, great. So if you've got a Bible, do you want to read along with that? If not, the verse is on the screen behind me. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Okay, let me pray for us as we begin. Lord Jesus, we are uh, encountering your words this morning. We want to encounter you. Lord, these will provoke us. They will challenge us. Lord, please soften our hearts so that we can hear the words of our God and our Savior. Lord, let us not leave here dismissing these as though they don't apply to us. But I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would land these places in our hearts. Let us know afresh that your burden is light, your yoke is easy. I pray that we wouldn't leave here crushed or guilty, but we would leave here challenged, provoked, and spurred on to live a life of following you. Amen. Um, recently, as I've scrolled through my uh, Facebook and Twitter feeds, um, I see a lot of people writing about wanting to make an impact with their lives, wanting to make a difference. And a, a common example at the moment that I'm coming across is people uh, have a desire to live an ethical life. Um, maybe you've seen this about single-use plastic or different ways that people are trying to care for the environment. We recognize the cost we're having on the environment and we're trying to do something about it. I think that's a good and a God-given goal for us to aim for. Um, earlier this year, I read a newspaper article and it gave us five ways that each household could reduce their environmental impact. They were moved to a renewable energy provider, walk and cycle more instead of using the car, plant trees or use biofuels, have a low or no meat diet, and fifthly, don't fly. So I chatted with a lot of people about those five things to see what people thought. People didn't mind the energy provider, the walking, the cycling, or the planting trees, but you mentioned meat or flying, and people started to give me loads of justifications for why they needed to eat meat. Where, do I, where would I get my protein from? There are no vegetarian recipes that exist. And lots of reasons why they need to fly. My family live abroad or I need to fly for work. And my point here isn't about meat consumption or flying habits, but it does seem to be increasingly clear that we do have to reconsider our attitude to both. 
My point is people like the idea of an ethical lifestyle and caring for the environment until the cost of it hits home. Suddenly, ethical living doesn't seem very attractive when it means you can't go on holiday to Portugal for two weeks in the summer. The cost doesn't seem worth it anymore. The parable we just heard, Jesus says a similar thing. He says, there is a cost to following me. Following him him entails living differently. Following him means our lives change. They will be transformed. Now, a life of following Jesus looks really attractive when you just look at the benefits. Your sins are forgiven. You're brought into an intimate relationship with God. You receive a new sense of meaning and purpose. God hears and responds to our prayers. He can work miracles in our lives. He can bring healing. It's kind of like, who wouldn't, who wouldn't want in? But right from the outset, Jesus made it clear there is a cost to following him. Following him means turning away from other things, being willing to count the cost and place Jesus first. This morning, we need to ask the question, what is the cost of following Jesus? What does it look like for us as the North Gathering to follow Jesus wholeheartedly? And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian this morning, but you're interested in Jesus, this is a really important morning for you because you need to know the whole package if you're to grasp what following Jesus means. If we aren't aware of the cost, if we aren't willing to bear it, we'll eventually just give up Jesus when the costs get too great. We'll miss out on the life he has to offer us if we aren't prepared to sacrifice other things in our lives. So let's look at this parable a bit more closely. Jesus tells us about two people. He says, first, there's the tower builder. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying the person began to build, but they weren't able to finish. So the person building the tower wants to make a wise decision. They, they want to make sure they know the costs of the tower before they build it, and they want to ask, can they afford it? Jesus also seems to be making it clear that they want to protect their honor. They don't want people to make fun of them or ridicule them for making a bad decision. So the tower builder wants to make a wise choice that protects their honor. Secondly, there's the king going to war. Jesus says, or suppose there is a king going to, who's about to go to war against another king. When he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Again, the king wants to make a wise decision. Can I win this fight? Is this going to go my way or not? And if not, he says we should seek peace rather than get defeated in battle. He also wants to protect his honor. A king who's defeated in battle is no king at all in this setting. So the king and the tower builder are presented to us as wise people. They want to make good decisions. They want to protect their honor. They don't want to look foolish. Then Jesus says, in the same way, Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Jesus says you too also have a choice, like the tower builder, like the king, you have a choice to make. Will you become a disciple? Will you become a follower of Jesus or not? But before you make your choice, Jesus lets you know the cost you need to consider. 
he says you need to give up everything in favor of following Jesus. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying here, go and give everything up as a precondition to following me. But I think he is saying, if following me is what you choose, it means I come before everything else in your life, including your possessions. You need to be willing to give these up if you want to follow me. Imagine you're in the crowd, because Jesus is speaking to a crowd here. He's not just speaking to his disciples. This is to a big group of people. What's your reaction when Jesus says those words? If I'm in the crowd, I'm like, that, that just feels way too much, Jesus. If you're making a sales pitch, that's terrible. You have set the bar so high. Why would, why would I want in? And the interesting thing is, this isn't a one-off for Jesus. It's not like he had a bad day doing his door-to-door rounds of pitching the gospel. Jesus continually says, follow me means putting me before your wealth, putting me before your families, putting me before your possessions, putting me even before your own lives. Now, remember the king and the tower builder? Does following Jesus look like a wise decision or a foolish decision? If I'm in the crowd, at first glance, I think this looks like a foolish decision. This looks like a terrible idea. When I first became a Christian, a lot of my friends and family said I was stupid. Why would, why would I give up other things in life to follow somebody I couldn't even see? But Jesus is saying something here. He says, if you want to make a wise decision in life, like the tower builder, like the king, the wise decision is you will choose to follow Jesus. But unlike the king and unlike the tower builder, the wise decision means you will look foolish to everybody else around you. The king and the tower builder are concerned with protecting their honor, concerning, concerned with looking good to the outsider. Jesus says real wisdom is being concerned with whether you have honor before God, even if those around you shame you and say you're a fool. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to give up your desire to look good in front of others and be willing to look foolish for the sake of Jesus. Church, Jesus calls us to a life of looking like fools. There is a real danger for us that as we try to follow Jesus, we also try to fit in and look like and seek the honor of the culture that's around us. There's a danger we spend so much effort trying to look like the people that we live near and work near and hang out with that we end up looking very little like Jesus. And I am preaching to myself there as much as to anybody else. Because you see, Jesus is calling for our complete allegiance, which challenges all the other allegiances we have in life to money, to power, to alcohol, to sexual fulfillment and sexual activity, to a particular standard of living, to our love for other people, our goals in life, what we decide to prioritize and make most important. Jesus calls us to say, I am in with him, which means He calls us to say, I'm not in with those other things. Jesus calls us into a daily battle where we choose to give our allegiance to him each day. Now, I know in my life, I want Jesus, but I also want a comfortable life. 
I want Jesus, but I want to have the final say over how I spend my money. I want Jesus, but I don't want to make things difficult or awkward by actually introducing Jesus into a conversation I might have with other people. Does anybody else feel those tensions? We want to live for Jesus, but the cost sometimes just feels too great. It feels too hard. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this great quote, which we love and hate at the same time. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. I'm like, yeah. And then it says, Dave, when Jesus calls you, he bids you come and die. I'm like, "Mm." on a good day. But you see, following Jesus means obeying Jesus and choosing his way in all areas of life not our own. We die to being the center of our lives as we place Jesus there instead. I think there's something specific for us as the North Gathering that Jesus's call is in direct competition with, and that's the middle-class dream that we are sold every single day of our lives. Here's a few few ways this plays out. The middle-class dream says, settle down, Build yourself a castle, a protected sanctuary, safe from the world, a place of leisure and pleasure. Be inward looking. Jesus says you're a sent people. Wherever you live, wherever you work, you're sent there as a missionary. Whether you rent or whether you buy, whether you're there for a month or a decade, you're a sent people, which means you're to look outwards. You're to look to the people around you to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. The middle-class dream tells us to own and consume, own homes, build bigger homes, gain possessions, accumulate, buy the latest, buy the best, buy the new, store up for yourselves. Jesus says you are not owners, you are stewards. All that you have is a gift from God. We're to be open with our homes, generous with our money and our possessions, trusting that God knows what we need and will provide for us. We're to be giving away to others. Ultimately, the middle-class dream says, your life is about you, your goals, your dreams, your aspirations, your desires, your experiences, your thrills. The universe is there for you and your life. And Jesus says, no, it's when you lose your life that you find it. It's when you live for God that you find true life, not when you live for yourself. It's all about the universe orientating around him. Do you see how those two visions are just in direct competition with each other? And the voice of culture is very, very loud, and the middle-class dream is sold to you on a daily basis in multiple different ways, but it doesn't fit with the vision that Jesus has called us to. Now, here's the thing about the middle-class dream. It's a wonderful dream. It's a beautiful dream. It's so enticing. If it wasn't enticing, we wouldn't buy into it. It's a strong dream. It sounds incredible. That's why we love it. That's why we buy into it. But let me ask you another question. If we step back and we analyze it, does it fulfill us? Does it satisfy us? Does it provide for us the answers that it seems to offer? You know, we are some of the most blessed people to ever live. Medically, educationally, wealth, standard of living, opportunities, a peaceful time. Many people in history have never experienced some of those things. We're experiencing them all at the same time. But if you ask the question to people in the street, or if I talk to people and we say, are we satisfied? Generally, this is what I hear. 
We feel far from God. We don't feel close to him. We're not sure that we're living with purpose and meaning. We're, we're worried we're not making the most of our lives. We have a fear of missing out because everything looks so good and attractive, it actually paralyzes us, which means we don't commit to things and we struggle to enjoy the good things that we have. We hate social media, but we're totally addicted to it because it constantly yells to us, everybody has a better life than you because everybody lies on social media. And we have growing levels of depression and anxiety, which are caused by many, many things. But I think this is one of them. If you look at the most popular books we're buying on Amazon, there's loads of books about healthy eating and veganism, while all the stats say that we're getting fatter and fatter as a nation. We have mindfulness books to help ease our anxiety because we are stressed out. We have books on how to clean because we're longing for order and control. And we have books on self-love because even though there are so many blessings around us, we just struggle to feel known and struggle to feel loved. Guys, the middle class dream is a lie. It's a lovely lie, but it is a lie. It isn't working because it puts you at the center of the universe. And that is the opposite to how God made the world to work. He has made us to serve him and follow him and be obedient to him. He's the center and everything is meant to orientate around him. Jesus' call to follow him, to count the cost and to put him first, is actually a call for us to worship rightly, to order our lives correctly, to take ourselves out of that central position and place him back there. Maybe that sounds a little bit too much, a little bit too radical, uh, too big an ask. Here's the thing, though. When you see people living uh, the life that Jesus describes, giving up living for themselves in order to live for something else, it's actually really attractive. In the news this week, it came out that the USA athletics team have been told they'll face consequences if they stage political protests at the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. Basically, if they, if they declare their political allegiance or opinion at the Olympic Games, there'll be a cost, there'll be a consequence they have to face. So why have they said that? Well, it's because two USA athletes recently staged political protests at the Pan American Games, and they both received 12-month probations, meaning they can't compete for 12 months. And here's what the athletes said. One of them said, somebody has to stand up for all the injustices that are going on in America, and a president who makes it worse. It's too important not to say something. The other said, I chose to sacrifice my moment today at the top of the podium to call attention to issues that I believe need to be addressed. Gun control, racism, mistreatment of immigrants. I encourage others to please use your platforms for empowerment and change. They are living for more than just themselves in those moments. They are living for something greater. They're willing to accept the costs. And when you see that, you go, that's how we should be living. It's an attractive way of living because it puts other things first. It puts the cause of justice and righteousness and peace before their own interests as athletes. The truth of Christianity is Jesus has shown you are most fully alive as a human being when you are living for God and living for other people, for community with God and community with fellow humanity. You are least human 
when you are living for yourself. You are not made to be an island. So although the middle class dream is attractive, it actually is slowly but surely dehumanizing our society by putting us individual islands at the center of the universe. Jesus has committed himself to the church, his church. He has already shown himself to be faithful to us, his people, his bride, through all our moments of failure, moments of turning away, moments of being disobedient. He has died and he has risen to show he's already won the victory. He's already redeemed us and forgiven us. So when Jesus calls us, he isn't calling us into a contract where he says, you must do these things in order for me to love you or forgive you. He's calling us into a covenant where he has said, I have already committed myself to you. I have already died for you. I've already risen for you. I've already won the victory and the good that you are to live in. I've already won the victory of the final kingdom, which will come into existence one day when Jesus returns. But Jesus' call in the here and now is come, come and live a fully human life. Come and live a life of fully being dependent upon God. It's a life of loving our enemies, of non-violence, of forgiving those who sin against us, of sexual purity, of being merciful, of taking the plank out of our own eye before we take the speck out of our brothers, of being salt and light in the world, of letting our yes be yes and our no be no, our caring for the downtrodden, of looking and caring for the overlooked and the needy, of prayer and of fasting, of looking to treasures in heaven and not storing up earthly possessions that will only rot and be destroyed, of contentment in the midst of lack and peace in the midst of storms. Church, if we live like that, if we pursue that, we suddenly become very distinct in the eyes of the world. We may look foolish, but we'll look different. We may be shamed, but we will also be attractive. Jesus said, people will know me through your love for one another. People will know me through when you live differently with each other. How do we live this life that Jesus calls us to? Jesus calls us to two things. He calls us to faith and he calls us to obedience. Being a Christian is about placing your faith, your trust in Jesus. We trust That in Jesus, God has come to us in the flesh to rescue us and redeem us. And we trust he's done this through dying on the cross and through his resurrection. That's what it means to become a follower, to place your trust in what God has done. But day by day, we keep placing our faith, our trust in Jesus by being obedient to the commands that he's given us. In John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commands. Jesus says, if you want to display your love for God, you can raise your hands and you can sing words of praise and you can pray. But if you really want to show me you love me, you obey the commands that I've given you. Obedience is God's love language, if you like. We show our love for Jesus by doing as he says. And here's the thing. Obedience to Jesus's commands leads us to live lives where we need to trust in him where we need to rely on him and be dependent upon him. That's the dynamic life that Jesus calls us into, 
placing our faith in Jesus, obeying him, and needing to trust that he will come through for us. Jimmy Seibert came and spoke to us as a church a few years ago and said something that really struck me. He said, lots of Christians want God to perform a miracle in their lives. Few Christians want to live in such a way that they actually need God to perform a miracle in their lives. Obedience to God entails reliance and dependence upon God. When you live as God asks you to, we're put in positions where we are forced to be reliant on him and not on the things of this world. And that fuels our dependency upon him, which fuels our intimacy with him. So what might that look like for you? I've got some friends who regularly go out on the streets to start conversations with people about Jesus or talk to people in their workplace or in their neighborhood about Jesus. They are, in effect, obeying Jesus' commands in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations. And what they experience is they have to be reliant on God. They have to have faith that God will come through for them. They need God to soften the hearts of people they are talking to. They need God to give them the boldness to go and speak to people. They need God to be their security for when they get rejected regularly. There's a cost because they might look foolish and they might be rejected, but they experience the joy of seeing people respond to the gospel, but also they experience the joy of having God as their peace and their security, of knowing they have honor before him rather than just honor before the people around them. I know people who live generously with their homes and with their possessions. They invite people in to eat with them and stay with them and live with them, whether it be homeless people or refugees or those just looking for a family to belong to or a community to be a part of. But they have to depend on God to make them content with what they have. They need God to help them forgive those people when they come in and they steal or they trash their possessions or they don't clean or small things. Like they, I don't know, they always leave food out on the side and they never put it in the bin or whatever it might be. They bear a cost, but they experience the joy of serving those in need and trusting that God is their provider. I know people who stand up for what is right and good and true and noble in the workplace. They need God to be their rock and their foundation, their strong tower in troubled times. They need him to act to bring about the changes to the structures and the powers that they're interacting with. There's a cost. They might face rejection. They might face persecution. They may even lose their jobs, but they receive so much more from God when they are depending upon him. Don't be fooled. The cost of Jesus, the cost of following Jesus is great. He does call us to die and to deny ourselves. He calls us to say, you are not to be at the center of the universe. I am. He calls us to live a life that will look foolish to other people. But that's also the life that is life to the full. Because it's the human life where we are fully dependent on God as our Father. A life of trusting that he will be our peace. He will be our comfort. He will be our security. And that is a fuller life than trusting that money or sex or power or status or food is going to satisfy us deep down. How do we respond today? What does it look like for us to follow the call of Jesus this term? What is he calling you or where is he calling you to count the cost and obey? 
it might sound scary, it might sound crushing, it might sound like a burden. Jesus never intends it to sound like those things. It's an invitation into life. Jesus is fully committed to you. Jesus cannot be more fully committed to you than than he is. His grace is sufficient. His love does not run out. But he calls us to take steps of following him. That is an adventure of trusting that God is going to be faithful to us, that God will be our provider. Church, we can live this life following the middle class dream and following Jesus. And we'll get to the end and we'll know Jesus and we'll love him. But we'll look back and we'll ask the question, did I ever really need him? Apart from saving me from my sins, did I ever really need him to come through in my life? I don't want to get to the end of my life and ask that question. I don't want us to get to the end of our lives and ask that question. I want us to get to the end and look back and go, man, we've got so many stories of God's faithfulness, God's provision, God coming through for us, us taking a step of faith and improving himself to be a God who is living and active who is alive in the world, who is bringing his kingdom, that they wouldn't be abstract thoughts out there that we agree with, but they would be lived realities that we experience. We need to hear Jesus' radical all-or-nothing call afresh, where he says, in the same way, those who do not give up everything they have cannot be my disciples. And we need to respond to Jesus afresh through faith outworked in obedience, which means repentance, turning from us being at the center afresh and turning and trusting and following what Jesus has for us in the term ahead. Let's pray. Why don't you just take a moment and in your hearts just ask ask the Spirit to speak to you about what the cost of following Jesus looks like at the moment. So for some of you, you're like, it's plain and it's obvious. For others of you, it, it's less plain and the Lord me- needs to make it clearer to you. And if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, how do you respond? How do you respond to the call of Jesus to place him at the center? That invitation into a full life of depending on God. Lord Jesus, you said that we do not do this life on our own. You will send the counselor, the spirit of truth, who will lead us into all truth. Holy Spirit, you have been sent for these moments. You have been sent for uh, us to be able to live these lives of obedience, these lives of trusting you. I pray, Lord, this morning you would soften our hearts to hear that call afresh.